Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey everyone, and note before we get started, uh, there were some tech mishaps with this podcast. My audio came out a little bit garbled, so I went back and re-recorded some of my questions. So if you do hear any production differences or differences in tone, that's why. It's because I recorded some of these questions again a few days later. Um, but with that, on with the show. Welcome to the Asian Review Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network, where we interview authors writing in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Empires are one of the most common forms of political structure in history, yet no empire is alike. We have our standard view of empire, perhaps the Romans, or the, or the China of the Qin and Han dynasties, vast polities that cover numerous different people, knit together by strong institutions governed from a political center. But where do, say, the empires at the steppe, like the Xiongnu or the Mongols, fit into our understanding of empire, or the Portuguese empire, which got its start as an array of ports and forts in South and Southeast Asia, or the Manchus, who waltzed into a collapsing Ming China and rapidly reestablished its governing structures, with themselves at the head? These are just a handful of what Thomas Barfield calls exogenous or shadow empires, which grow on the frontiers of larger, wealth-growing polities. In his most recent book, Shadow Empires, an alternative imperial history. Shadow empires cannot exist without their hosts, extracting wealth from them. And yet, the most successful of them grow to become wealth creators in their own right, becoming what Barfield terms endogenous empires. Thomas Barfield's Professor of Anthropology at Boston University, his books include Afghanistani Cultural and Political History, and The Perilous Frontier, Nomadic Empires in China, 221 BC to AD 1757. Today, Tom and I talk about empires, both the commonly understood kind and their shadow variants, and how we can differentiate between the many different kinds of empires throughout history. So, Tom, thank you for coming on the show today to talk about shadow empires. Um, I want to start by asking about this distinction you make in your book between endogenous empires and exogenous empires. What exactly is at the core of this difference? What makes one different from the other? Well, our usual study of empires we consider places like Rome, China, Persia, these are empires. And then there are things on their outskirts, like the Mongols or Alexander the Great, or all bunches of people that have similar kind of empires, but they're not exactly the same. So one of the emphasis of the book was, what do we find as categories of empires and what I call endogenous? And what this is, is it grows out of a center and it consumes its own resources. The bigger it gets, the more powerful it is. But essentially, it's a self-supporting, stable kind of empire. And it's largely based on exploiting a sort of a peasant population, sort of an agricultural base. Exogenous empires, which is a fancy term that I'm using here for my shadow empires, is what happens when they expand and they run into places that they can't really absorb? And in many cases, they can't absorb them because those people form their own counter empires. So I call them shadow empires. And the basic difference on that is they're a secondary phenomenon. They come into existence largely because they're challenged by these expanding empires. But even when they're successful, they're different. And that's because they rely on external resources. Endogenous empires if you will, tax their own people, tax their own trade, they're self-contained. Exogenous empires, shadow empires, are always relying, if you will, on some some other resource. 
That is, if we looked at the ancient Athenians, it's maritime resources. If we look at Mongolia and China, what we see is they extort China by raiding or trade agreements. So what we've got essentially is if we look at our shadow empires, they're almost always secondary phenomena and their resource base comes from the outside. If the rest of the world disappeared, they would collapse. Endogenous empires, if the rest of the world uh, disappeared, they would continue to go on. You know, and, and that leads me to, um, I guess, to, to a second question, uh, which is, are endogenous empires, you know, quote unquote, better in some ways than exogenous ones? I mean, not better in a moral sense, but better in terms of maybe have deeper institutions or... I guess, more stable. Is, is there something about endogenous empires that makes them, again, quote unquote, better than uh, exogenous ones? I, I wouldn't say better, but they're different. They, they have their own foundation. In some senses, they're, they're often more stable, particularly in terms of, of their economics. They're, they're more self-contained. In general, they have stronger institutional bases. Um, they're generally larger in population, not always, but pretty much. If you look at China, Persia, and Rome, each of those empires had about 50 million people. Uh, in general, shadow empires don't have that kind of population. The Chinese always used to complain, how can the nomads of Mongolia consider themselves our peers? There's only a million of them, and there's 50 million Chinese. On the other hand, they owned a huge amount of land. So they were equal in size, but hardly in population. And some of these empires barely, the shadow empires in Mongolia barely have writing. You know, so from a Chinese perspective, they didn't look like empires at all. On the other hand, you had to treat them that way because they were pure polities. I mean, they militarily uh, and politically, uh, they were equal to their neighbors. Um, I do want to get to China because I think that, that that's a very good way to examine some of these different categories of empire you discuss in your book. But before we get into that... Um, you uh, may, maybe complain is too strong a word, but uh, you do talk about how most students of empire get far too distracted by the Roman Empire. Um, I remember there was that meme on social media a while ago that everyone's like every man is taken by the Roman Empire all the time. Um, but, you know, how does a focus on the Roman Empire and Roman history uh, maybe distort the way we understand empire? Well, one of the things we have to realize is that Western historians in general, that's the empire they know. They're most familiar with it. They're vaguely aware that Persia had an empire, had empires for a thousand years, but they know almost nothing about them. They're certainly aware that China had empires, but they're generally not too aware of those. So it's easier to focus on, on what you know. But the problem of that is, number one, Rome was the latest of the ancient empires. Persia was the first, China was the second. And Rome comes third. All right, so it's it's comes late, in, if you will, in the empire game. But the bigger thing is, and this creates a problem, it took centuries for the Roman Empire to come into existence. We see them expanding out of Italy. They defeat the Carthaginians. It takes them about two centuries to become what we would consider an empire and declare themselves an empire under Caesar Augustus. If we look at Persia, we see Persia conquering 5 million square kilometers in the lifetime of two rulers, Cyrus the Great and his son Cambyses. If we turn to China, what we see is during the Warring States period, we see 
a century of people thinking about establishing an empire, but the Qin dynasty in conquering China does it in about in, in the lifetime of one emperor that will become Qin Shi Huangdi. Rome, therefore, when we look at it, we think, wow, it takes a really long time to build an empire. Um, and it takes a long time for its political institutions to come into existence. But if we compare them to other places, Rome is the outlier. The other biggest outlier, too, is when Rome collapses, at least in the West, because it continues as the Eastern Roman Empire down to 1453. When it collapses in the West, the Roman Empire never comes back to Europe. Whereas if we look at Persia or we look at China, empires collapse. The Han Dynasty collapses. There's a, a, a period of turmoil. There's foreign rule. But the Tang Dynasty comes out. An entirely new empire, but looks very similar to the Han Dynasty. And in the Persian area, they established their empire first, 550 BC. Alexander the Great takes it out. His successors kind of divide it up. But within a century, the Persians reunite and literally from 550 BC until around 650 BC when the Arab Muslims uh, destroy the Sasanian Empire for a thousand years, that whole area of Southwest Asia is ruled by an empire. So the, the whole concept of empires, if we're looking for models of how they work, we should go to the places where they lasted the longest and when they disappear, they come back. And Rome is not that. Let's talk about China, which gives us multiple versions of empire. Let's start with first the Qin Dynasty and the Han Dynasty, which is one of the three endogenous empires you feature early on in your book. How does Qin Shi Huang build this endogenous empire in China? Well, the interesting thing is, is we compare it to the Persians. There's no empire. <clears throat> they take it over and they expand it in the lifetime of, as I say, two emperors. And it remains pretty stable after that. So they create an empire and then think about how to organize it. All right. China, it's, it's different. You go back, the Qin state, which will uh, eventually unify China, all the way back to Lord Shang, has advises and say, if you want to unify China, this is what you've got to do. And every warring state in China thinks it would be a good idea to have a unitary state for China except each one thinks they should be the one that runs it. So if we look at it, there's at least two centuries in which Chinese intellectuals, Chinese political scientists, if you will, discuss that the ideal state for China is a centralized, unified state. You know, the middle kingdom, the central kingdom. That is very different than elsewhere in that Chinese states have thought about the ideas of empire and how they should run long before one is created. And that's very different than other parts of the world. Uh, therefore, the institutional characteristics of China are different. The Persian Empire is highly decentralized. It runs a king of kings model. The mm -hmm. Persian Shah has subordinate kings under him. He allows plenty of local diversity because he's ruling Egypt. He's ruling Babylonia. Uh, he's, he's ruling India. Uh, each of those places of different languages, different cultures. In China, they all pretty much, at least in North China, they all share more or less the same culture. And what you're looking at is who's going to be dominant. But the most interesting thing, if we look at the Qin dynasty, it was an outlier. It was a, it was a state that turned itself into an army. And it was the economy was designed to support military expansion. 
other Chinese states looked upon it as a bit of an outlier. So it has policies that were excoriated by later uh, Chinese philosophers uh, about breaking down the extended family, about having no hereditary privilege. I mean, it was an unusual state, and it turned out to be one that was highly competent in terms of conquering China. But how long did it last? After the first emperor dies, his son can barely hold on a couple of years. It collapses, and we get the Han Dynasty, which is the longest-lived dynasty in Chinese history, because they adapt to, it's one thing to create an empire, it's another thing to rule it. And the Qin Dynasty was very good at conquering an empire. Its policies were not very good for holding it together. The Han Dynasty dumps the various policies that were unpopular in the Qin and creates a much more stable state. But the two, they're, they're dyads. I mean, it, it, the Han Dynasty does not unify China. It picks up the pieces in a civil war after the Qin Dynasty collapses. But nobody thinks it would be a good idea to go back to the warring states, division of China. Now the belief is, yeah, we need one empire. And the question is, who's going to run it? Um, well, speaking of... Uh conquering um you know later the the mongols uh take over china as part of their expansion to a worldwide empire um they established the yuan dynasty uh i guess later but but to first start off you know what are the characteristics of a steppe empire like the mongols and then how did the mongols change when they took over china and decided to rule china much in the same ways as, as their i guess chinese predecessors did well, you've got to step back is because yeah. the go back to steppe empires. You can start with the Shangnu, uh, with the An, then you can look at the Turks with, with the, uh, sorry, with the Han dynasty, then with the Turks and the Tang dynasty. And their deal is you've got a bipolar frontier because native Chinese dynasties see themselves as separate from these horse riding people on the steppe. And they strike, they literally wall themselves off. All right. What the nomads do there, the nomads need to defend themselves against aggression from China. But the other thing they do, they have horse riding, they have archery, they have mobile forces. You don't need very many people to be militarily powerful if you have horse cavalry. And so what they do is first raid China to get what they want. But then they very quickly go to the Chinese court and say, if you'd like us to stop war, why don't you pay us? And... The officials at court decide, you know, that's a cheaper way to do it. But because the nomads in Mongolia are interested in extorting China, not conquering China, because they wouldn't know how to rule China, and there's not very many of them. So you get an established, eventually symbiotic relationship in which Chinese dynasties pay off the nomads. Indeed, they even turn them into allies. Okay, So it's an extortionate system in which, if you will, the nomads in Mongolia are a bit parasitical on, on China. Although they become later symbiotic, because if you look at the end of the Han Dynasty, if you look at the end of the Tang Dynasty, what you see is the nomads often come in to protect the dynasty when it's weakened, because that dynasty pays them subsidies. If China collapses, so are their subsidies gone. So it's it's an irony that uh, Chinese historians will say, gee, the only people loyal to the Han Emperor, the Tang Emperor, are with these nomads from the steppe. Well, they had a vested interest in being that, because when China collapsed, so did the nomad empire in Mongolia because there were no resources coming from China to support it. So you get a vacuum in both. Okay, that's the normal pattern. The Mongols under Genghis Khan start out the same way. Genghis Khan invades North China. 
That's the Jurchin uh, 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 Chin dynasty at that time. And he extorts that. He says, pay me off, I'll go home. And he does. But these people are not Chinese ruling North China. They're from Manchuria. So they pay him off to go home, but then they build a bigger army and start fighting. For the next 20 years, until 1234, they will be fighting in North China that kind of destroys it. The Mongols end up conquering areas they only intended to extort. At that point, and this is what I say, a, a, a shadow empire can become an endogenous empire if it moves out of its zone, if it begins conquering and administering territories. And that's what happens to the Mongols, first in North China. If you'll notice, however, if you look at when the Yuan dynasty is established, it is not established by Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan does not see himself as ruler of China. It is established by his grandson, Kublai Khan, because at that point, he has turned Mongolia into a province of Mongol China. He is ruling from North China. He is ruling from Beijing. But unlike other foreign dynasties, the Mongols do not hire Chinese literati. They, you know, they, 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 if, instead, they bring in people from Central Asia. They bring in Turks. They bring in Muslims. Uh, they have an examination system in which only one quarter of the positions are available, if you will, to ethnic Han Chinese, sort of an ethnic apartheid not system. So the, the Mongols have to change their mode of governance when they begin to become rulers of China, particularly when they conquer all of China, which in the eyes of, of Confucian historians, that made them legitimate. You know, they unified China, regardless of where they came from. But the problem is they never ruled China in by using Chinese institutions. They adopted some of them, but far from all of them. And the Mongols are the shortest lived of any of your major Chinese dynasties. And when the Ming dynasty begins to pressure them, they do not fight to the last man. They simply lead to Mongolia and the Ming dynasty takes over. So the Mongols change their own ways of doing things, but it's what I call, they make a transition from being an exogenous emperor empire to an endogenous one. If you're ruling over millions of people, you you know, you you can't rule on horseback. You have to adopt institutions. But the Mongols uh, never adopted the classic Chinese institutions that other foreign dynasties did, in which the Chinese, on Chinese, had a major role in governance. Um, the Mongols always tried to keep them at a distance. There was limits to what they could do and still run China, particularly South China. Uh, but nevertheless, it's institutionally, it is the least Chinese looking of the empires, of the foreign empires in China. Let's move on to the other foreign invaders that take over China, the Qing, who you classify as a vulture empire when they oust the Ming dynasty. What does that mean? Uh, a, a, a vulture dynasty attacks an empire, attacks the remains of an empire that has already died. It didn't conquer the Ming dynasty. The, the Ming dynasty was brought down by Chinese rebels, guy one-eyed Li, who, who captures Beijing. The last Ming emperor hangs himself in the palace. And the Ming frontier guards who are holding the Manchus back, they're stuck. What do we do? Our, our dynasty is gone. Do we ally with this rebel or do we ally with these foreign Manchus? And... The Ming troops on the frontier, their generals decide, we'll ally ourselves with the Manchus. And, but the thing is, when they move into Beijing, they are not ousting the Ming dynasty. 
they are taking over the remains of the Ming dynasty. It's dead. It's gone. And that's a very different uh, situation. They have all of China within two or three years. I mean, so they're conquering the whole thing. But if you look at the majority of troops that conquered China for them, they're former Ming forces. And many of these people got to rule provinces in, in, in southern China. Uh, but the difference is, and it, you can see, every time a dynasty collapses, whether it's the Han dynasty, the Tang dynasty, or the Ming dynasty, the people who come in to pick up the pieces are not the people from Mongolia, they're the people from Manchuria. Because they have experience in ruling frontier Chinese people. They already have some experience with this. They have a great cavalry, and they put things together and take it over. But the difference between them and, uh, if you will, the Han or the Tang or the Ming dynasty is they have a dual organization. They have one set of laws for the people on the frontier, that is the Mongols, the Manchus, and another set for the Han Chinese. As far as they're concerned, it's a multi-ethnic empire of which they run it, of which China is the most populous part but they're going to use Chinese officials to run China, uh, the Han Chinese part, and they're going to use Manchu, Mongolian, and other foreign peoples to run the frontier areas. So it's a balancing act. And you, you don't see that in the Han Tang or Ming. You know? So it's this dual organization. And that's one of the reasons that they're able to control the frontier. Foreign dynasties like the Qing, they don't, they don't build walls. There's no great wall of China. The Ming you go visit uh, Beijing and you see the wonderful walls, the Ming built those walls to protect Beijing. The Manchus never rebuilt those walls. Why? Because they knew how to rule both sides of the frontier. They were comfortable ruling both sides of the frontier. As far as native Chinese dynasties are concerned, you have barbarians on one side and civilized people on the other. As far as the Manchus are concerned, Chinese might call them barbarians, but we know both sides. And within three generations, particularly under the Kangxi Emperor, they adopt enough Chinese institutions, they recruit Chinese officials, so they are considered legitimate by their Chinese subjects. And they last well into the 20th century. It's a very stable empire. Let's move on to some of the other forms of shadow empire throughout history. One of the things that struck me reading your book is that you classified the British Empire, at least initially in its early stages, as one of these shadow empires, an exogenous empire, a maritime empire. Despite the fact that the British Empire and its many contemporaries become the archetype of modern-day colonialism, why do you describe these European empires, at least at their start, as shadow empires? Because they they use one of my maritime empire templates. It goes back to ancient Athens. Maritime empires, their, their power is sea power, naval power, right? And, but the interesting thing is they're not interested in conquering other places to get their territories. They're interested in exploiting them economically. Their wealth, how they pay for their navies, it comes from extorting the economic wealth of territories that they do not control directly. They prefer to control things indirectly. They, they, wish, to, they wish to profit from the exchange of products that they do not necessarily produce themselves. The British may have dominated the tea trade, all right, but they didn't produce the tea themselves. Right? It's this is. But the other thing about maritime empires is they have a very tiny territorial footprint. If we look at it, you know, they have their center where they have their capitals, uh, but beyond that, they avoid actually incorporating land because you would you would have to administer those people, and it's expensive, and they might rebel against you. So 
most historians of empires don't even include maritime empires because they're small, they're too small. The Portuguese who, who control the ports, a lot of the ports of India, they control the, the, the sea trade in the, in the Indian Ocean with Arabia. Uh, what we find is it's, it's dozens of ports all along the Indian Ocean into the South China Sea, but very few Portuguese. They don't need them. The really powerful empires that are there, they say, well, what you know, what do we care if these these guys are on the coast? So what we find is empires that are focusing almost entirely on trade. And the ancient ones were pretty much in the Mediterranean, but the early modern ones start with the Portuguese, then we get the Dutch, and then we get the British. And what we find the British in India, the British in India had an agreement with the Mughal Empire to trade mostly in Indian textiles, but also to provide sea services. They, they protected local shipping going on Hodge to Mecca. They protected that from pirates. They protected uh, India from being attacked by other sea powers. But they were vassals of the Mughal Empire, and they saw themselves that way. They only occupied three ports. One, you know, sort of Bombay, Madras, and Calcutta. That's really, really tiny. It's only when the Mughal Empire begins falling apart, the death of Aurangzeb, so in the mid-18th century, India begins to fall apart politically, and the British are able to get Bengal at that point. So they own some of the richest provinces in India. But it's interesting, there are very few British there. What they do is essentially subcontract out to Indian princes. They have an army in India that will eventually be bigger than the British army in Britain, but 90% of it is, is local Indians. So what we find is that the British government is not running this. Who technically is in charge of India? It's a commercial operation, the British East India Company. Now that became sort of a peristatal, that is the, the English government sort of took it over but they never got rid of it, not until 1857. So what we find is is a very unusual form of empire, unless you understand how maritime empires work. You avoid as much as respond as much as possible direct responsibility. You like to work through intermediaries. Your basic goal is how can we rip these places off for money? If you turn to their control, you know their wars with China it is not to have a base in Hong Kong and then conquer South China, it is to get the Manchus to accept the import of opium. Why? Because they were, the British were paying for tea in silver and that was draining their treasury. And they said, isn't there anything that we can trade China that is not money? And that turned out to be opium. But if you look at what kind of war is that, that you're fighting essentially for an export business and yeah, you get a few ports in, in China, but you're not at all interested in like conquering China or even running China. You're interested in making money from China. So that's the essence of maritime empires. The one time the British get into, if you will, like territorial uh, control is in North America. But you've got a lot of British going, you know, from Canada down to, to Georgia, but these people are pretty much on the coast and the British refused to accept them as political equals. So we have the American Revolution. The British lose, essentially, their settler colonial, their best settler colonial enterprise is lost. 1776, into the 1780s. 
that's when they switch to India and they begin focusing much more on how can we make more money from India, which forces them, it's like the Mongols taking over China. They find themselves ruling over more and more of Indian territory until they end up running all of South Asia. But they did not intend to create a territorial empire. And if you look at what they were doing with India, uh, you can see that it keeps its shadow empire, uh, its shadow empire structure. Other European empires, if we're looking at it, other parts of the book I talk, empires, traditional empires don't do well with the rise of capitalism. They, they have a hard time adapting to it. The only type of empire that does do well with capitalism is maritime empires because they're already money focused. The ancient Athenians were money focused. So if we look at the Europeans, they pretty much adopt um, uh, a maritime empire model for their colonial regimes. Some are different. The French are a little bit more land oriented than the English or the Dutch or the Portuguese, but they all focus on making money. If one looks at colonial empires in inland Asia, Russia and China, um, they have an entirely different way of looking at it. They control all the peoples on their frontiers in sort of a colonial manner, but they're not interested in it for the economics. They're interested in for the power and direct control. I want to ask about one more of your empire categories which I admit is one that I had the most trouble trying to wrap my head around what it is, and that's the vacuum empire, which you say pops up in around northeastern Europe, around Ukraine, Russia. What exactly is a vacuum empire? How's an empire like that come about? Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the latest... I mean, there is nothing there, let's say, before six 700 A.D., it's a bunch of communities, subsistence agriculture, hunters, foragers. There's nothing there. There's no money there. Uh, the weather's not very good. Nobody was interested in that area. Um, there were there were no cities to raid. There were there was no silver there. There was no gold there. Uh, so it's an empty area, largely of people that are minding their own business. One of the things that happens. And this is with the rise of the caliphate, 600s, 700s, um, is on the border of the caliphate, which is, you know, today's Ukraine, southern Russia, uh, there was a steppe empire. It was actually founded by people who originally came from Mongolia. It was a Turkish empire. And those people realized there's a huge market, particularly in furs, that they trade south to the caliphate. And the caliphate will pay good silver coins for those. So they begin sending people into the forest zone, reorganizing the people there, making them their clients, and they have to pay taxes in furs, beaver furs, um, what the Russians later called soft gold, incredibly valuable. Um, and it totally transformed the economy. Millions of, 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 of silver dirhams begin flowing into that area of the forest all the way into the Baltics. That begins to attract outsiders because the only reason that people came into that region before was it links the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. That's the Nestor, the Dnieper, the Volga River, those north-south rivers. Suddenly Vikings are there and it's Vikings who establish a first state, but they do it in combination with a local Slavic elite, Finnic elite. It comes together, but you're creating an empire in a vacuum zone, right? Nothing was there before, 
these people, outsiders come in, they take advantage, they work with the local population, and they create an empire. Uh, this The first one was the Rus, which was established in, in Kiev. But what we see, the interesting thing about that, and one of the reasons I call it a vacuum, it has no natural center, right? If you look at Paris or London or even Beijing, these are imperial centers that keep coming back again and again and again. Yeah. This Aura zone could be ruled from anywhere. So the first place it's ruled is Kiev, which is in Ukraine. But then the Mongols come in and the Mongols destroy. They, they take over that whole area. They make the Russians their clients. These are these you know, leftover roots in the Bulgar region. So what happens is after the Golden Horde begins to decline, we see two new vacuum emperors. And the most powerful one initially is the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which is the largest empire in Europe. But nobody's ever heard of it. But it, it it's, was made by pagans. Later, they become the Catholic kings of Poland. Um, and their capital is Vilnius. Not quite on the, it's not on the coast, but it's near the Baltic. And then they're in rivalry with the rising states. It could be Novgorod, but it turns out Muscovy is the other one. So what we see is power moving from Kiev. Mongols take over. Then there's new vacuum empires. One sort of on the Vilnius side, then to Moscow. And under Peter the Great, it goes to St. Petersburg. That there's no, if you will, no, it can be anywhere. And that's one of the reasons I call it vacuum empires. I said they're they're kind of they have they're like a neural network. There's no like one brain operating the whole thing. It's like you can cut off any part of it and it'll regrow. You know, Vladimir Putin may have lost most of the Soviet Union, and as if you know Russia never missed a beat. You know, because that's what's happened before. It's uh, foreign conquerors would, you know, whether it was the Poles or Napoleon and Hitler came close to it. You capture Moscow, you don't own Russia. They just move elsewhere. That's a really old strategy there because it, it's a vacuum zone. There's no particular center that if you control that, you can control the rest of it. So it's an unusual type. It's a it's a forest zone that is, is not really conducive to building empires, which is why it's really late. But when it's monetized, then everybody's coming in there after furs. But the other big thing is slaves. The nomads are attacking Ukraine, southern Russia, uh, even up to the time of Ivan the Terrible. They're just walking off with hundreds of thousands of Russians, which they sell south. And the Russians, for centuries, pay a large amount of money to like the Crimean Khanate to essentially buy their hostages back. It, it was a large business. So it is not until Catherine the Great, late 1700s, that Russia finally conquers, drives the nomads out. The nomads have lost power. Steppe cavalry is no longer what it used to be. And the empire really grows to become largest empire. But the interesting thing about a vacuum empire, it kind of stops whenever it reaches a peer polity. So Russia is expanding into Siberia, expanding to Central Asia. It stops when it reaches Qing, China. Right? It's, it stops when it reaches the Ottoman Empire. It takes over Poland, because that was part of Poland-Lithuania, but it stops when it reaches the Habsburg Empire, when it reaches the Germans. When it receives strong opposition, it kind of stops. So this is an interesting dynamics to it uh, that you don't, you don't see elsewhere. But it's an unusual type of uh, of empire. 
But every one of my shadow empires is unusual. All right, that's the whole point of shadow empires. All the endogenous empires are kind of alike. Some are more centralized, some are more decentralized, but they have a strong family resemblance. Every one of my shadow empires is really different. I mean, how different can it be from running a naval power in Athens where you're going after very little territory to the Xiongnu nomad empire where you all you are is territory, right? And Athens highly literate, Xiongnu illiterate, like horse cavalry versus navy. Normally we'd say, well, these these have nothing in common. Why are we even comparing them? But they're both varieties of my shadow empires. All right. So that's that's the important kind of thing. If you go after it individually, you say, well, these all look unique. But you know, as Tolstoy said, every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Uh, each shadow empire is shadowy in its own way. So you, when you're looking at them, you can see they all have sort of similar origins. They all depend upon outside resources, but exactly how they get them, what the dynamic is, that is quite different. There are a lot of examples of exotic empires becoming endogenous empires. There don't seem to be many examples going the other way around, endogenous empires becoming exogenous ones. That's likely through the nature of what an endogenous empire is. They mostly just seem to collapse instead. But I guess there aren't any examples of endogenous empires becoming exogenous ones. No, it's be, it's, it's contradiction in terms. You know, um, these are some extent parasitical, right? So uh, the shadow empires, an endogenous empire, it's either working or it isn't. It collapses, all right? So, um, but it, it can't suddenly decide it's going to depend on other people's resources. It provides the resources. If it can't provide them, it collapses. If you look at the end of the Han Dynasty, if you look at the end of the Tang Dynasty, it always is marked by sharp population declines, economic collapses, often diseases. It, it's a mess, right? But their whole stability depended upon organizing production. If that production fails, as in production, so is their empire. But the thing about shadow empires is since they're dependent upon outside resources, if they lose those outside resources, they'll collapse even if they're in good shape, right? That's when China collapses, so do the nomad empires because they're dependent upon them for resources. If they're not there, then there's no reason to have an empire in Mongolia. What it, it collapses into its component groups. You know, let everybody be independent because there's nothing to hold them together. So, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about the shadow empires that become endogenous empires is they are the world's largest. That's how we know them. The, every one of the world's largest empires all began as a shadow. That is, if we look at the caliphate, which ruled from Spain all the way over to Ind into India, up to Central Asia, enormous. After that, the Mongol Empire world-beating enormous. Qing Empire, three times the size of the Tang Dynasty. Russian Empire, largest area by landmass ever in the world. And the British colonial empire, by the time they become endogenous, is larger than all of them. It's said as many as 24 million square kilometers. Admittedly, that's partially because they just drew lines on a map and like claimed most of Africa. But nevertheless, the interesting thing is our largest empires in world history in the modern period uh, all got their start as shadows, and that's because they knew how to incorporate marginal people 
cost-effectively into their empires. So they had no trouble creating supersized empires. And we wonder, well, why, you know, why were they so much bigger? Is because the way shadow empires worked, they had the ability to incorporate people on the margins and people on the center in a single polity. I want to end by maybe briefly asking whether we see strains of these kinds of empires, endogenous or exogenous, in today's modern-day powers. Um, I, I think we do. I, they, almost all all these empires disappeared um, at the end by the end of the First World War. In the 1890s, most of Eurasia is still ruled by empires. By 1920, no, gone. Ottoman Empire, Qing Empire, Russian Empire, <laughs> Habsburg Empire, all gone. The colonial empires of Britain, of France, of the Dutch, they survive, but only another 20 years. End of the Second World War, they're all gone. And even in the early 20th century, people were happy to call their polities empires, the Empire of Japan. You know, the Third Reich also means empire. Nobody calls, no matter how big you are, nobody calls their place an empire. You call your enemy, uh, their empires were not empires. But nevertheless, these huge polities, the world polities today, um, they use a lot of strategies, at least implicitly, that come out of their own history. And I would argue that the Americas uh, closely resemble Athens in terms of more interest in economics than control of territory and working through alliances and indirect approaches rather than direct approaches. It's a very Athenian kind of style in its foreign relation. It's a very maritime style. China is just the opposite. China has a legacy of, of different empires to choose from, um, but Xi Jinping would seem to be fond of the Tang dynasty right now. But the problem that China faces is this idea of empire is the, the, the its leader is the ruler of all under heaven. That means China can't understand how the United States works with alliances because China has no friends, right? It's either superior and has tributaries or it has enemies. That is a model that may make you hegemon of East Asia, but is kind of hard to extend to the, to the rest of the world. But it's, it's something that deep in Chinese history, yeah, that's the way you run an empire. And they look at the Americans and say, well, what kind of thing is this? Or I could turn to the EU and how can you have all these sovereign states as part of a single unit? Well, it turns out that the Europeans developed the Holy Roman Empire, one of my empires of nostalgia, which seems not to exist at all, but is highly effective administratively. And the Russians, I would say, they're going back to one of the shadow empires thing is you can't compete economically. You can't compete on the world stage in terms of world-beating inventions. What are you going to do? You go back and focus on your military power. Shadow empires would always focus on what makes you strong even if you can't do the other thing. So you get to be a pure polity, even if, for example, you know the Russian economy is smaller than the Korean economy. Korea is 10 and like Russia is 11 or 12. I mean, Korea is 100,000 square kilometers. Russia is what? 18 million square kilometers? It's seemingly what's going on here. But if we look at the models that their rulers are using, they're often implicitly drawing upon these older historical experiences that they have had 
with these shadow empire strategies. But these are so deeply embedded in their cultural consciousness that they're not even aware that they're doing this. They tend to think this is the natural way to do things. Their rivals in other parts of the world say, that's not the natural way to do things, but we don't understand what those people are doing, which allows for misunderstandings because uh, you're working from different operating principles. We think that's a great place to interview with Thomas Barfield, author of Shadow Empires and Alternative Imperial History. Tom, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And two, uh, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Uh, well, uh, the book is published by Princeton University Press, so it's available uh, at any fine places. Stores are sold online or in your shops. Um, I hope to see it translated into a number of languages. Currently, it's going to be translated in Ukrainian and, and Turkish. Uh, my next project, I have been working for many, many years on Afghanistan, and I've just published a revised uh, second edition of my work, Afghanistan, a Cultural and Political History. So I've had plenty of things to keep me busy. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia, that's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on off your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Ben Rothenberg, author of Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice. But before then, Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show today.